One of the things that, that we have uh, always stressed here at The Effect and has been a huge part of my life and is becoming more a part of, of Frank's life and others around is this contemplative lifestyle. And uh, it's a different way of, of seeing and a different way of processing and moving through your your daily life that uh, is really designed to do what we were talking about earlier, to make the unseen things as real, as palpable, as accessible moment to moment as the seen things are, the material things are. And that's it. Can we have dual citizenship is kind of what it's like. Can we move through life on two planes simultaneously where we see the physical things and we deal with them in a responsible way and, and maybe from the outside looking in we look just as, as frantic and crazed as, everybody, as, in, as any other time in our lives, but inside we know the difference. Inside we know that somehow the tail is no longer wagging the dog. Somehow we know that we are connected in a deeper centered place that makes sense of all the other details and craziness and things that we do. That's what it is. This is a definition of kingdom, if you will. This is what kingdom is. It's being able to have that sensitivity to both realms, if you will, at the same time so that we can have that sense of okayness. I think I've come to the point where I realize that God is divine okayness. How's that? (laughs) You just know everything's going to be okay. If you don't know that to your core, then your life is going to be characterized by stress and anxiety and fear and obsessive-compulsive choices to mask the fear and the anxiety and the stress that you feel. But once you get to the point that you know, that you have that blessed assurance, that you know because of who God is, because of you, how you've experienced him to be, you know that everything is going to be okay because God is okay. And it's our choice simply to enter into that okayness or not. That's an amazing thing. It's so amazing that Jesus called it good news. You know, the good news is there's no bad news. That's it. All right. We've been going through James and we took a big hiatus here with the holidays and with everything going on with Pat here. Wasn't Pat good last, last week? I really enjoyed him. He did a great job. And he's probably listening right now. So, Pat, we all think you did a great job. Okay. Pat and Shirley love to stream when they can't be here because all, they're all the way in Beverly Hills and so it's not always possible for them to get out here, but we're sure good to have them. Um, so we're going to get back into James. It's been a while since we've been in James. We were going through the book of James. We got in um, three Sundays, so we're hitting the fourth Sunday. I think we're about halfway through the, the uh, material I want to present to you. But the book of James, for those of you who are hitting this for the first time or maybe just forgot over the holidays, is um, outside of the book of Matthew, probably the most Jewish book in the New Testament. Those two are very Jewish, and there's no coincidence there because Jesus and James were brothers or cousins or just really good friends. We don't know for sure, but the word that is used to describe him in relation to Jesus is brother, but in Aramaic there is no word for cousin. So everybody was your brother. Everybody was your sister in the extended family. And so it's a little bit hard to know. And sometimes people who were just so close, so thick, they could be called brothers as well. But at any rate, he was very close to Jesus. And after the crucifixion, James took over the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem gathering, the Jewish followers of Jesus, and he guided them for 30 years before he was executed himself by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish authorities. 
And so there is this long, rich tradition of James being the fostering patriarch of the early church that we miss here in the West because we don't have a tradition with James. We see Peter in that role, but really it was James, at least in Jerusalem, who really fostered and took the church out of that early time and all the confusion and all of the fears surrounding the crucifixion. And so his book is, is seminal. It really is a, a real watershed. In fact, many scholars believe that it was an early catechism that was used for early you know, converts coming into the faith, for children being brought up in the faith, that the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount were two catechisms that were being used. And really, if you, really, if you examine the two, the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, you see a lot of similarities. And you see that, that James's apple does not fall far from his brother's tree. He's teaching very similar. He's bringing out many of the similar points. And so this is what we want to take a look at. Both James and Jesus in their two books, if you will, Sermon on the Mount and James, they do something which is really good for retention, for teaching, have you ever heard someone say, if you're going to try to explain something to them, to someone, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them? Have you heard that one before? That's kind of what, what they're doing here. You know, they're going to tell you what you're going to hear, they're going to tell you, break it all out into detail, and then they're going to sum it up at the end. And so what we're getting here at the very beginning, think about the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. That's the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. What you're getting is a picture of the finished product. What does a person look like who is finally living in kingdom? What does a person look like, as we just described, who is living with that dual citizenship, living with that awareness at the same time, every moment that they're living their physical lives of the unseen world, God's spirit blowing through, creating that okayness, creating that contentment, creating shalom, which just isn't peace in the sense of the absence of conflict, but the greatest amount of healing and health and wholeness and completion and ripeness and everything that an ancient agrarian society could pack into that word. And so, what does that person look like? Well, if you think about it from the Beatitudes point of view, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the gentle or the meek, you put those two things together, and you've got a picture of a humble person, a person who doesn't see anyone else as greater or less than themselves, someone who can identify with others, connect with them. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful. If you're mourning, it's because you were connected to something so deeply you feel keenly its loss. Just as we're mourning Lenny right now, if we didn't have that relationship with him, if we didn't love him so much, if we didn't break out into a smile just to see him walk into a room, then we wouldn't be hurting right now. We wouldn't be grieving right now. We wouldn't be mourning right now. But blessed are you if you mourn because you have connection. Imagine a life without connection. Imagine a life so defended, shields up, that your heart never gets hurt, but your heart never does what it's intended to do, which is connect. So to be mournful... To be moved, to help others in need, to be merciful, speaks to connection. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Now we're talking about desire. Now we're talking about consistency. Now we're talking about not being diverted in this path that we have chosen. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who pursue purity. Peacemakers is just not someone who rides in and breaks up a fight. 
A peacemaker is someone who shows up diligently day after day trying to create the soil, the environment that's necessary for that shalom we were just talking about. That greatest amount of healing and wholeness. Wanting to see everybody's boats floated higher. The early church was like voluntary communism. Everybody gathered in someone's house and they put their revenue for the week on the table and then divvied it up so that everyone, especially widows and orphans, had enough. All right? That's what we're talking about here. You know, are we willing to be that kind of peacemaker who shows up day after day to make sure that people have what they need? These ideas, this, this portrait that Jesus is painting, right? Humility, someone who is humble, someone who is connected, caring, someone who is passionate, tenacious, disciplined, courageous. Pretty good adjectives, don't you think? Imagine if you were living a life with that kind of integrity, with that kind of of breadth to it. This is a life that has to know that everything is going to be okay. Why would you live this way if you thought the only way you were going to survive was by getting what was yours and holding on to it? Because a life like this is open, allows everything to flow through, is not afraid to let things flow through. Let things go. So now you've got James. Now, what's he doing at the beginning of his book? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations. Really? James? What are you talking about here, buddy? You know? But what he's talking about is the acceptance of life on life's terms, the acceptance of the difficulties and challenges that life constantly presents and will always present. Life will never be any different. Are you expecting life sometimes to just completely flatten out? Maybe at retirement. We're going to retire and everything's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to be bothering me. You know? That day never comes. As long as you're drawing breath. James is germane here. James is relevant here. We have to be able to accept. We have to be able to even celebrate life's challenges because they are the very things that take us to the next level. He says they produce endurance, but which produces the perfect Result. And so there's this endurance to per- perfect result, which he calls wisdom. And the wisdom allows us to overcome the doubt with action, which is the definition of faith. Overcoming doubt with action is biblical faith. Not what you think or what you believe, but what you do in the presence of not enough information, lack of evidence, will you still move through with patience, not gritting your teeth and grinding it out and trying to get, but with patience with a sense of serenity. So here is James giving us accepting, enduring, mature, wise, faithful, patient, as the adjectives that he uses to describe the person who is living in this kingdom that Jesus describes for us. You see how they line up? It's beautiful. Those of you in recovery, think of your 12 steps. What's the first step all about? Humility, powerlessness, accepting life as it is, accepting yourself as you are in relation to your moments. It's the same thing. You've got to see how this works. You've got to see how all of these steps, the, the, the process that we're living through in life, if we're doing it along these lines, is taking us down a road that is forming us, shaping us more and more into a kingdom being, a kingdom liver, however you want to talk about that. And that's not liver and onions. That's a kingdom liver. 
It just popped into my head. I don't know why I said that. Okay, so they give us this beginning. They, they give us this, uh, this picture of the finished product. Now they're going to start to break it down. Okay, how does this work? Let's get into the details. Where does the rubber meet the road? All right? In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does with the balance of chapter 5, because it's 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, he starts to redefine the law. Now, you've always heard the law was this, but I'm going to tell you it's that. And he breaks it down and starts to redefine it. Then in chapter 6, he does the same thing with righteousness, because the Jews had a very specific idea of what righteousness was. How much you gave to other people, your prayer and your fasting. And he's going to redefine that as well, so that they start to understand the actual intent of righteousness. What's going to take us where we want to go? He's always trying to to discern and distinguish between simply following rules for rules' sake and actually living a life that has a purpose so that the rules come out of you, no longer restrictive, but they pour out of you in a way that is consistent with this living. And then finally, in chapter 7, he goes into great detail, making another distinguishment between judgment and discernment. Key foundational issue here. And then James comes in, and the first thing he hits here is the same issue of judgment and discernment, and then faith and how they all work together. So this is where James is going to be jumping into. Let's take a look at James in the second chapter, verse 1. And it's probably up on your screens by now, because James over here is amazing. And then also in your bulletins, James 2, right at verse 1, My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Remember what this early church was about, that voluntary communism? Everybody just put all their increase on the table and then divvied it out. To make distinctions was antithetical to what they were trying to achieve. But not only just for the institution of the church or their gatherings as they were then, it's antithetical to the notion of kingdom. If you are making distinctions, if you have created an us and them situation, if you feel that you are better than anyone else or that anyone else is better than you, or any, you are no longer in kingdom. You are no longer kingdom itself. The distinctions, the separation itself destroys kingdom, if you want to think. At least it destroys the sense of it in your own experience. This is why it was so central these aren't rules for rules' sake. This isn't just social justice, just doing what's right by other people. If this is what is flowing out of you, then what is inside of you is not kingdom. And this was a central piece that Jesus was trying to get across in the sermon, that James is trying to get across in his book. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But if you have dishonored the poor man, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? What is the reason, what is the, the motivation behind the 
place, the special place we give people who have the things that we revere, the things that we value. Because there's a flip side to that, is what James is trying to point out, right? Basically, what he's trying to say is that faith, our faith, should be placed in the unseen attributes that God values so greatly and not on outward appearances. We would probably say, well, duh, right? (laughs) Seems so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, why is he making such a big deal about this? What you have to remember is that in his culture, in Hebrew culture, physical wealth was a sign of God's approval. Remember when Jesus said, Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom, and everybody flipped out. Well, you know, we kind of look at that and say, well, yeah, that makes sense, because we, we kind of see that, that not in Jewish culture, not in first century Hebrew culture. Remember when uh, in John 9, Jesus comes across a man who was born blind from birth? All right? First thing the disciples ask him, right? Who sinned? This man or his parents or grandparents or somebody that he would be born blind. In other words, there had to be a correlation between the misfortune that this man was experiencing and something that God is feeling about him because that's the way it worked. And if you were rich and if you were powerful and if you were beautiful, well, then God, of course, was showing all his favor. But remember what Jesus said. No one sinned. There's no sin here. In fact, what he was talking about with this man, this man was so connected, had such a strong family, had such integrity within himself, he was the opposite of someone who would be shown any disapproval. There's no connection. Jesus is really trying to break the link there that his followers were, were just naturally seeing because of their culturation, acculturation, what they had been taught. Job, right? Job, all the misfortune. No one can believe that he didn't do something wrong. He's protesting his innocence, but no, we're not buying it. Because look what's happening to you. You got boils, man. You know, your livestock died. Your kids died. You know, your wife is screaming at you. There's something wrong here. You must have done something wrong. Otherwise, this wouldn't be befalling you. And so here's this strong cultural connection. And Jesus and James are trying to break it. They're trying to get people to see this is not the way that it works. You know? Now, before we start patting ourselves on the back too much, thinking, you know, we've evolved beyond this. We, we, we don't really think that way. Hey, we do the same thing, don't we? We just are sneakier about it. A little bit in denial. You know? Be honest. Don't we treat people differently based on what we see? You know, someone once told me, if you want to know how much money someone has, you always look at their shoes. Don't look at my shoes, please. (laughs) You know, I never thought of that. Look at their shoes. I guess it it has, if you put a lot of money into your shoes, that's probably one of the last things on your list. So that means you got all the other stuff first, and now you're getting around. I don't know what it is about shoes, but shoes. Okay, so you're all going to be looking at each other's shoes now. Okay, Mia has really nice shoes. All right. So she goes up on the totem pole. I don't know how this, but think about it. Clothes, right? Watches, cars. These are the signals in our culture that tell us that someone is well off. And as soon as we see the gold Rolex or we see the Mercedes uh, or whatever it is that hits us, suddenly we have this different opinion, don't we? We have this different thought in our heads. We start to treat them differently. It's here now, too. 
And it doesn't just stop with wealth. I mean, don't we love having Pat and Shirley here? They're celebrities. It's really cool. We get to have Pat and Shirley Boone here in our little funky room, as I said last week. You know? And we tell people about it, and we want to take selfies with them. You know? Got to get... Now, the person that walks in here that looks like maybe they slept in the bushes last night, are you taking a selfie with them? You know? Are we thinking the same things about them? See, now we can still make distinctions and realize that there are differences in all of us. But do we treat each other differently because of that? Are we welcoming to everyone? Are we nurturing to everyone? Even if we recognize. See, this is where the evil motives can come in that he's talking about. And when he talks about evil, remember that's Bisha. Remember that's Aramaic for unripe. It means immature. It means unformed. It means not yet able to see the world as God sees it. To see the connection between everyone. It's not necessarily even such a pejorative term. You need to protect yourself from the Bisha person, the evil person. But if you can start to see them as immature, as God sees them, now you can begin once again to love the enemy, as Jesus talks about, because there can start to be reestablished some compassion, a human link again. You know. So even as we make these distinctions, can we do that? With an evil motive, are we looking to somehow profit? Are we looking to somehow raise our own status by being next to these people that we perceive as wealthy, as powerful, as famous? If that's our goal, then Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. Whatever you get out of that, it's done because there's nothing else. It stops at the seen world and does not extend into the unseen world. There's nothing there because we're not investing into the unseen world. We're not seeing or even aware of the unseen world because of the distinctions, because of the separations that we're making here. You know? We reveal the true object of our faith by what we revere. Think about it. What do you revere? What do you value? Jesus said that you can't serve God and mammon, and that's usually translated as God and wealth. But mammon was anything that you piled up in your life that came to define you. That's mammon. It could be your sports team. You know, you define yourself as a Packers fan. Who are the Packers playing today? <laughs> there, there, spoken like a good Packers fan right there, right? All right. It could be that. It could be your profession. It could be your belief. You could be mammon over your faith. That could be what defines you in a negative way because it allows you to separate yourself from other people who don't share your faith. Even the good things that we see as good in life, if they're taken into this extreme, if we're clinging to them, if we're being identified by them, then they become the source of our faith. And if the object of our faith is our faith or our church, and not the God who stands behind them, then we've lost our way. And all kinds of dysfunctional things can now start to take place, and do take place, don't they, in the name of religion. We see that over and over and over again. Someone has said most of the evil things that have happened in the world have happened because of religion. You know, it's probably true. Religious zealotry is what is the great motivator of people to do all sorts of unspeakable things if they've lost the deeper connection that we're talking about here. We've got to be able to see this unseen God. 
Do we revere the unseen God? Do we revere God-likeness that we see in other people? Or is it just the material things, just the power, just the fame, just the physical wealth? What James is saying here is that physical wealth has nothing to do with God's approval. Nothing. We're supposed to see through that. That's the judging with evil motives. So this central tenet here that Jesus brings up in chapter 7 of Matthew, this judging versus discerning, so, so critical to understand. He says, don't judge because the standard you use will be used against you. And that sounds like God is going to get some retribution against us. If we do bad here, then he's going to get us later. And nothing could be further from the truth. That's not it at all. That's not the way this works. Judging is distinguished from discernment. We have to be able to discern, right? All right, what's judgment though? Judgment is a conclusion we reach based on a standard preconceived in our head that we simply apply, okay? Discernment is a conclusion we reach based on the experience of a person, place, or thing. Completely different. When we apply the standard in our head to the people and the things around us, that separates us from them. It creates a subject and an object, and we are judging them usually less, sometimes greater. doesn't really matter, because greater or less, they're still not on a plane with us. They're still not connected to us. We can't really identify with them, and therefore we can't really love them, either behaviorally or with any sort of feelings of affection, because they're an other It creates an us-and-them situation. Disturment is different. When we have experienced that someone is not trustworthy in a certain thing or is trustworthy in a certain thing, now we can act on that, and we have to be able to do that. Common sense tells us that. If you know that someone is not trustworthy in financial dealings and you don't start a partnership with them, right? That's okay. You can still like to go out to dinner with them and go see movies and hang out and tell jokes and, and you can still laugh with them. You just know you don't go there. That has not created the separation. That's simply just saying, okay, this person's not ripe yet over here. Or maybe this person's a little rotten over here. But at any rate, they're still connected with me. I see my own ripeness and unripeness and I can still connect and relate. Discernment is what's absolutely needed. And Jesus makes this distinction. We have to be able to do that. As soon as we judge someone less than us, then it's possible for someone to judge us the same way, and ultimately, God can judge us as less. That standard that we use and we apply to the world around us now gets applied to us. In fact, it's applied to us before we ever apply it to anyone else. We bought it somewhere, maybe as a child, that God is up there judging us, God is up there trying to make these distinctions with us, And if that's possible, we will never, ever, ever see that God's love has no degree. It's a degree-less love. He doesn't ever distinguish between us. Everybody is equal. God has no favorites. You know why? Because everybody's his favorite. God can have an infinite number of favorites. You're a favorite. And so are you and so am I. We're all favorites because there is no degree to God's love. It is equally lavished, hosed on everything and everyone, all the time. It self-exists. It's just there. Remember the story of the workers who come early in the day, midday, and with an hour to go before the end of the shift, and they all get paid the same, and they're all, the ones who came in early are just beside themselves. 
But that's the way God's love is. You can't work at it. It just is. In fact, the harder you work at trying to earn it, the less you will ever be aware that it exists. Because all you're trying to do is entitle yourself to something. And we are not entitled to such a love. We just get lavished with it. What a difference. It's the mindset that creates the reality that we have to endure. And Jesus is saying, James is saying, if you continue with this mindset, as if people could be put into boxes and categories, then you will continue to miss the fact that there are no boxes and categories with God's love. It's all the same. God's love is degreeless. God's love is always the same. In the most real sense, God's love is not just, oh, God's love deliberately unbalances the scales of justice, always in the favor of the beloved. Always. Does that mean we can do whatever we want and we're always going to get love the same? <laughs> well, yeah, we're always love the same no matter what we're doing, but if we don't start to repent and move along this direction that James and Jesus are taking us, we will never ever connect with God's love or know that it's real or benefit from the fact that it's always present. Do you get that nuance? Really important to get that. Our perceptions are projections. We see what we already think we believe. And we project on God our limited view of love. And because we do that, we'll never learn to trust. I had a band leader <laughs> 30 years ago. I was, uh, actually, I was performing in a band from the, for the General Telephone Company, you can imagine they actually had a band. And uh, I know, it sounds weird. And they, they uh, toured us all around the state, usually at Elks Lodges and places, and, and we were supposed to be goodwills ambas- goodwill ambassadors for the company. Uh, but the, uh, the leader was uh, someone who had worked in television, and so he was kind of a big wig, and he made a lot of money, and we just got a regular wage, whatever it was. Um, I was a cable splicer, yeah. And so... Um, you can imagine that there were times fomenting a lot of unrest within the group and, and then he started to, he formed another band, that's what it was, and so he was paying more attention to them than he was to us and so we started to get weird and jealous and, and feeling like stepchildren and so we think the morale was starting to sink and he would come in and he'd say, you've got to protect your attitude, protect your attitude and we're thinking, yeah, it's easy for you to say, making your six figures and you've got your other band, you know. But you know what? As I think about that now, it seemed like such a cop-out and it seemed like such a facile thing for him to say. But what I realize now, he is absolutely right. It's up to us to protect our attitude. It's up to us to protect this double vision of life, the seen and the unseen. Because left to our own devices or if we just let go of our desire and our steadfastness, we're always going to sink back to the material we're always going to see just the surface of things and we won't be able to see simultaneously the center. We need to protect that attitude, protect that view. Always bring it back. And when we get triggered and we get pulled off track to come back with that sense of centeredness and bring ourselves back, it, it's, it's fundamental. We have to be vigilant, which is another theme, right, in Scripture. Be ready. And that means always looking, being aware of where we are and what we're doing, the connection between the two. James goes on at verse 8. If, however, you were fulfilling the royal law, 
according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Really? For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, there's a lot of tough stuff in there we need to break down. First of all, who's the neighbor? If you're fulfilling the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So who's the neighbor? Kariba in Aramaic. You know what it means? The one who is near. That's it. You know, if a person is right in front of you, that's your neighbor. Whether you like them or whether you don't like them, whether they're a good person in your eyes or a bad person in your eyes, they're still your neighbor, and we are supposed to be loving them as we love ourselves. Friend or foe, like or dislike. Because what Jesus says is the highest form of love is loving the enemy, not the one that you understand, not the one that you like, not the one that you get, not the one that you have any feeling affection for, because if you do that... He says, everybody can do that. That's easy. What about this idea of loving the enemy? How does that change things when there is no affection? How do we bring out of ourselves the kind of behavior that we would give to ourselves for this person for whom we have no affection or maybe an act of dislike or disgust or even a hatred? It starts with identification. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They don't see those distinctions. They can discern between a Bisha person and a Taba person, between a good and evil person, with someone they have to, of course, protect themselves from and someone they can really let in. But at the same time, they see the same traits in themselves and there's still that identification. There's still that connection that allows love to flow to the enemy. If you can't do that, then you can't live in kingdom because you've created the boxes for people again. And you're in this box, and they're in this box, and there is no flow. There is no sense of kingdom. So judging and this partiality that James is talking about is sin. How is it sin? Why is it sin? Because sin, hataha in Aramaic, is not the behavior. Behavior can be lawful or unlawful. That's not the sin. The sin is the state of being separated, the state of disconnection, the state of being out of kingdom, less than Allaha, which is, which is their name for God it's himself, means unity, means oneness. To miss the mark of that perfect unity, that perfect connection and oneness is sin, hataha, to be out there. So any behavior that leads to disconnection, separation, is sinful. And any behavior that leads to unity and good relationship is righteous. That's the way it works. And so by judging, we are creating separation. That's why it's sin. Judging creates separation. To see the other person as alien, as different, as less than, as we talked about, allows you to do less than love to them, for them. Allows you to create less than shalom for them. Hataha and alaha. Separation versus unity. 
Anything less than unity is missing the mark. That's the sin. This is the subtext for what James is trying to get across here. It's going to get important when we get down into these last verses. And the partiality is not even a sin legally. It's not on the books. You know? In fact, their culture that revered the law practiced this partiality. That's what they did. That's what they lived by. And so the punishment, therefore, for partiality is not legal either. The partiality, the punishment for partiality is the separation that it creates in your life. It is the hell that you must live in and through because of the viewpoint that you bring to your moments and your relationships which degrades them. That is the punishment. God doesn't do it to us. We do it to ourselves. God doesn't tempt James says this right here, a little bit later. And he really doesn't punish. He doesn't have to. We do it to ourselves. Example. How many of you are involved in politics in the upcoming election? No one wants to admit it, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, I don't spend really very much time on social media, and, and there's a reason for that. But uh, Marion has spending, been spending a lot of time on social media, and she's been very involved in, in watching the election and everything. The level of discourse that is going on right now on Facebook and uh, in chat rooms and, and blogs is unbelievable within Christian circles. In fact, I think it's worth worse within Christian circles. You know, Trump seems to be the main polarizing figure right now, right? And so, if you're a Trump follower, then you must be a spawn of Satan because this guy says so, you know? And, and you just read the comments underneath a post or something, and it's unbelievable what's going on. What must be the day-to-day, moment-by-moment attitude and life of people who can say such things online? I mean, are they really experiencing that kind of tension that, that kind of, of anger all the time, maybe they can turn it on and turn it off. But, but think about it. The separation, the ability to judge someone as less than because of a held belief creates this disconnect that then allows you to treat somebody the way that people are verbally or at least in print treating each other. Illegal aliens... You know, it's a problem in our country. It's a legitimate problem that, that is looking for an answer. But as soon as we see the Ill- illegal alien as a parasite in our culture, not realizing where they came from or the, the, the reasons that they're doing what they're doing to try to save their family. I work in Mexico, and I know if I were in their position, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. I would do whatever I had to do to put food on the table for my family. And if that meant crossing an imaginary line in the sand and going to where I could find work and send money back, I would do it in a heartbeat unless someone shot me at the border. So I understand from that point, yes, we have to find a solution in our country so that everybody's boats can remain floated. But to suddenly see that person as less than human or someone who is your adversary allows that us and them situation. And just go right through all the great social issues of our time, whether it's gay marriage or whatever it happens to be, if we create that us and them, if we judge them, once we've done that, once we start showing partiality to people we agree with as opposed to those we don't, we have lost kingdom in our lives. 
And we've lost the ability to be the peacemaker, the one who works diligently day in and day out to create the maximum amount of shalom for everyone in our community, in our home. This is what James is talking about. We don't have to go very far to see exactly what is going on here. And ultimately, what James and Jesus are telling us is that we're not special because we're different. We think, because I'm different, I believe this, as opposed to all them, now I'm special. Now God really sees me. Now God really approves me. We're not special because we're different. We're special because we're the same. Can we get that? We all get the same love from God. Nobody gets any more or any less. We all get paid the same no matter when we show up for work during the day. We're not special because we're different. And in fact, as soon as we see ourselves as different, we've stepped out of the flow of God's love and we no longer experience it. And everything changes. This is what we're trying to get across, what they're trying to get across. Now he talks about keeping the whole law, keeping the whole Torah. And if you break any one thing, you're breaking everything. And that sounds really harsh again. It also was completely illogical. Right? And unfair. Is any infraction really the same as any other infraction? If you break one infraction and break one code, have you broken the entire law? In other words, is stealing and lying even a little white lie? Is that really the same as murder? Or any other really heinous sin you can think of? (laughs) Is a parking ticket really the same as assault, you know, in our legal code? Really? Is that what he's saying? Well, it's nonsense, obviously. But it's nonsense because we're thinking legally and not relationally. That's the difference. We have to think relationally. We have to think through the purpose and the intent. Jesus said that I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill its purpose and intent. What is the purpose and the intent of the law? To preserve life. To preserve relationship to bring awareness of God's unseen presence into every single moment. If you take a look at the body of the law, that's what it's doing. Preserving life, relationship, instilling connection and community and the seeing, the unseen presence of God, making that palpable to us. It's not about following the code. It never was. Even the word Torah means instruction or guidance. It doesn't mean a law the way we think of law. It's a funnel that brings us as an experience, as a process, into a relationship with God. That's what it was always intended to do. And James calls it the law of liberty, which is really kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Because we think of law as restriction, but only because we're trying to follow rules that restrict us. Instead of allowing, as the scripture says, to have the law written on our hearts, which means we become the law, we become the intent that person who hungers and thirsts after connection, after relationship, after the greatest amount of shalom in his or her community. And then the law flows out and becomes this freeing experience, not a restrictive one. That's the law of liberty that James is talking about. The fulfillment of the law that Jesus talks about is the ability to know truth that will make you free. And you're only going to know the truth is if you follow the tenets, if you follow this path, this way to the Father that Jesus says is only through him, only through the way that he lives and and relates to people. 
this knowing. And so any infraction of that law is pointing to something interior that is not yet transformed. When I was right out of high school, I got a job as a bank teller. One of the jobs I know I never want to do again. I realized I never wanted to deal with people's food or their money because they get really cranky with those two things in their lives. But I was working as a teller. I was working for Bank of America, downtown Los Angeles at 7th and Spring, which was two blocks over from Main Street, which was Skid Row at the time. I don't know if they've cleaned it up now, but it's okay. It's, it's, it was pretty bad. And so here I am at the teller window in this, in this uh, bank, and of course all of the homeless people from Skid Row would stream in with their government checks. And Boy, I'll tell you, it was, it was something, seeing that parade of, of humanity coming through and standing this far from them. You know, there, there is a, a smell of sweat, <laughs> urine, and uh, I don't know what else that, that mixes. And you smell it once and you'll never forget it. But I remember one day, this, this uh, middle-aged to elderly gentleman walked in, uh, Asian gentleman, just perfectly attired. His suit, you know, it was threadbare. I could tell it was threadbare, but it was, it was pressed and, and his tie was, was tied up and it was straight and he had a hat on and he came with his government check and he's standing there in front of me and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this guy's all put together. And then I just happened to look up and saw a cockroach run out from under the lapel of his jacket and back in again. One infraction changed everything. Do you see what I'm trying to say? It's not that that in itself was so bad, but it spoke to his living conditions. It spoke to everything that he was going through that I couldn't see at the moment. That one thing changed everything. One infraction is not it. What it does, it points to, if you can do that thing, it points to the fact there's this whole living condition inside of you that's got cockroaches in it. I don't know how else to explain it. That's the, <laughs> that's the idea here. Have you ever been, uh, you know, at maybe at dinner or at a party with a husband and wife and they show disrespect to each other? One cuts the other one down in public and all of a sudden it changes your, your idea of what their marriage is like. If they can do that here in front of me, what the heck happens in their house behind closed doors? That one thing is it's a it's a window in to what what's going on here, you know. Just looking at someone how how someone treats their subordinates, they may treat you fine, but how do they treat the waiter that's serving them dinner? How do they treat the bank teller that's trying to help them with their with their money with their transaction? Those little tiny things speak volumes about what the character, what is the integrity of the person. And this is what James is bringing across. He's not trying to say that a parking ticket is the same as murder. He's not trying to say that. But he's saying if you are capable of the small infraction, then there is an unfinished quality within you that is really breaking the whole thing because you're not really living in kingdom. See how this works? We have to get into this idea of how they looked at law, how they processed things. It's a lack of trans- transformation. It's not a legal judgment. It's just showing relationship. And the punishment for this is the separation, the alienation. Take a look at James again, these last two lines. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. To be judged by the law of liberty 
is simply not to see the degreeless nature of God's love. That's being judged by the law of liberty. Because if you do not know that God's love has no degree, if you don't know that God loves everyone the same, then you're living in fear. And the obsessive, compulsive things that you will need to do to get through that fear, to anesthetize the pain, to get through another day, will create all sorts of dysfunction in your life. That is being judged by the law of liberty. God doesn't do it to us. He loves us all the same. We do it to ourselves. To continue to live in fear, without the endurance, without the patience, without the wisdom that sets us free, is to be judged by this law of liberty. To finally move into this, to finally realize that we can be completely free and yet completely fulfilling the intent and purpose of law and completely connected to each other starts with the experience of a love that has no degree and moves into all our own choices and our own decisions and our ability to love back. We only love because he loved us first, right? That's the way this works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for James. Thank you for his ability to understand so well his brother's teaching that he could describe it so clearly, so practically. Help us to see what he's talking about. Help us to begin to experience what he experienced at his brother's feet as the head of his community. Help us to see the depth of connection that's possible when we finally just start to get out of the way. Let our heads go. Stop clinging to these standards and these principles that just separate us. Help us to allow people to to disagree with us and not be offended. Help us to allow to see everyone as worthy of everything that we think we're worthy of, of, and even more than that, if we're hard on ourselves. Father, thank you for being the perfect lover, showing us how it's done, showing us what's possible. Help us to continue to follow in these footsteps, follow this way back to you. Hopefully, more and more, we want to just know that everything really is okay that you are that okayness. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your steadfastness. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. We love you back as best as we can, and we hope it's better tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.